welcome to an American but not really podcast. This podcast is for everyone who is navigating life in America, from newcomers to established professionals who have some small and big questions for the society about values, morals, careers, parenting, politics, economy, health, relationships, everything. Based on my 30 years of life experience in USA, having worked in film, advertising, marketing, PR, news broadcasting, and design, from interviewing Larry King to art directing for big corporations, we're here to talk about what it's been like living in USA. Please join in and subscribe. Today I'm sitting down with my personal icon, Lori Rosenwald, an author, designer, painter, and educator whose impressive body of work encapsulates her vivacious, outspoken, and colorful personality. Her most recent book, How to Make Mistakes on Purpose, which was the subject of her TED's talk and is accompanied by a touring workshop of the same name, gives readers and audiences insight into the beautiful world of creating through intentional acts of randomness, a way of working that helps individuals get unstuck stuck and discover new skills. The workshop has been conducted for major businesses and brands like Google, Starbucks, Scholastic, BuzzFeed, and Johnson & Johnson, just to name a few. Fast, loose, and fun ultimately sums up Laura's one-of-the-kind design style. She wrote quite a few books. For example, All the Wrong People Have Self-Esteem, and to name but just a few, Red, Yellow, Green, and Blue, a book that is very popular with my kids, and New York Notebook. Over her career, Lori's work has included animation, product design, and both online and print media for companies like The Atlantic, Bloomingdale's, Coca-Cola, Ikea, Neiman Marcus, Nickelodeon, Ogilvy, Random House, Sony, Sundance, Warner Brothers, just to name a few. Outside of her career as a designer, Lori has taught both graphic design and illustration at the School of Visual Arts and Parsons School of Design, as well as Pratt Institute and New York University. She has been awarded by the Type Directors Club, Art Directors Club, American Illustration, Print Magazine, Communication Arts. When I invited Lori Rosenwood to be on my podcast, I knew she would not hold back. She tells it as it is, about it all, men domineering the world of publishing and other art organizations in the 70s and 80s, her family artistic background, and how it allowed her to be privileged enough to choose her projects, how she always lived in New York and never intended to leave the city, how her current family status allows her to do what she does best, creating original, unique art and teaching others, how her worldwide known workshop, How to Make Mistakes on Purpose, benefited companies like Google and Starbucks. She tells it all and doesn't hold back. Tune in every Friday for a special guest. Oh, and by the way, we also talk about artificial intelligence and 3D. And you need to hear what she has to say. Hi, and welcome to an American But Not Really podcast. Today I'm sitting down with one of my favorite artists, Lori Rosenwald. We've met when I took your workshop that I still remember very well, how to make mistakes on purpose that you're still traveling with and you had your tech talk about it and your new book is coming about this uh, workshop. And um, I just wanted to start this episode with telling how honored I was to meet you because when I was in uh, was I, when I was in school of visual arts we obviously talked about all the great designers and 
and your name came up quite a few times. So when I saw on Facebook by accident, because I started following you, um, that you are doing this workshop, I sign up right away and I think I send you a message saying, please, 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 like, is there a space in this workshop? I want to do it. And it was a really, really interesting eye-opening experience for me as a designer because um, just the whole idea of this workshop, um, and you will talk about it much better than me um, to explain what it is and why you're doing it and how you come up with this. But I remember it pushed the limits. It kind of pushes you as an artist to think or as a designer to think differently from everything that you learn in school and from certain standards um, in design. So, and then I was um, lucky to be your intern and work with you at your studio. So I am so honored that you are part of this episode and I want to talk to you about everything, about your books, and which I love, 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 um, especially the one uh, about New York and the, the, all the wrong people have self-esteem. It's absolutely hilarious. And I really want to check out your new book. So I wanted to start actually um, from the very beginning. Um, I know you were born and raised in New York, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, and um, I don't remember if you mentioned your was an artist as well. Yeah, he was yeah. a sculptor. Yes. 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 So art and creative um, people from a young age. But tell me more about how it came around that you wanted to become a designer, a painter. Okay, okay. Mm -hmm. um, I was uh, brought up, like you mentioned, in a very artistic household. Um, both my parents were, well, now you say they were beatniks, which is a word you don't hear very often, but they really were. And I was what they used to call a red diaper baby, which maybe being... Um, from where you're from, it means a different thing to be a um, left-leaning, uh, if not communist and socialist uh, uh, politics in New York in the 50s. Um, it was a different kettle of fish and there were a lot of uh, very well-educated people, primarily in Manhattan on the Upper West Side that were either branded as communists or, you know, I, I think very few of them had actually joined the Communist Party, but um, I certainly know a lot of people that were friends of my parents who were blacklisted by Joseph McCarthy. I'm sure you know about that. Yeah. Uh, that, 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 that happened in the 50s. Um, so I went to a school called Walden that was very, very, very liberal. We called our teachers by their first names. And um, the young men that were killed in Mississippi for trying to help uh, African-Americans register for the vote, um, two of, out of the three of them went to Walden. And um, there was a lot of connection between my school and um, you know, uh, uh, certainly the, pro the, the civil rights movement um, and uh, protesting the war in Vietnam and I went to all of the peace marches, you know, from the time I could remember, like in a papoose, 
with my mother, you know. So I think that my background really affected me in, in a couple of ways. For, for one thing, um, I didn't want to be an exclusive uh, artist uh, that was, you know, you could only see their work in a museum or a gallery. I liked the idea of being a designer, partly because I felt like the art world was too uh, exclusive and I didn't want to exclude anybody. I thought that it would be a fun, wonderful thing to bring people art where they didn't expect it. I was very naive and I thought, oh, you know, if I could design the most beautiful pizza box or laundry detergent in the world, that uh, it would be better than going to a museum because people were getting art, really good art, and uh, where they didn't expect it. And, you know, like in a very everyday way, you know? So I had sort of a political idea about it. And then I also felt like, because my family, my on my father's side only was, was very wealthy, I felt a certain amount of guilt, you know, for being uh, so educated and going to museums all the time. And um, so art, because it was, spoon fed to me like almost everybody with, with like religion most people you know if they came from a very religious background when they're a teenager uh, at least most of the people I know re would reject it so because I came from a very arty family I thought that the idea of being an artist was too was, was a snob thing you know was was an exclusive thing and I didn't want to be that way I wanted to be you know a man of the people so design seemed to be a way of be, being an artist, but uh, for everybody, not just if you went to the right school or had the right connections. So I was very conflicted about a lot of things, but I think I was very naive because what happened in the real world was that design became very, very fancy and exclusive in the 80s. And I'd say towards the end of the 80s, early 90s, um, uh, it became, design became a thing uh, that it hadn't been before where, you know, certain restaurants and certain products and certainly with, with fashion, um, everything became branded in a way that it hadn't before. Um, you know, I saw a New Yorker cartoon once that said, you know, do you remember there were people in a restaurant going, hey, do you remember when food was just food? And I do remember that time. And then it became something, you know, there were both that were, and it wasn't so uh, uh, for everybody as I hoped it would be. Um, but in any case, uh, the real reason when I think about it now was none of that. The real reason was that I loved letter forms and words, and I wanted to, I always started to incorporate them into, you know, if I was making a painting or when I went to school at RISD, Rhode Island School of Design. Um, you know, I was in all the departments. I started out in, um, I, first of all, I didn't get in, which broke my heart. And then I did get in the second year and I had to pick a major. And I always joke now that I'm 67 years old and I still haven't picked a major because <laughs> I started, and also because I'd always been a big reader. Um, the, the idea of the word and the image being one thing, I love that. So I went into graphic design, but in the 70s, it was really boring. It was you know, you could only use universe and grainy, depressing photographs, and it wasn't colorful and it had no sense of humor. And I missed drawing. So I went into, I, I transferred into illustration department. And when I got to illustration, they were doing cutesy 
children's book stuff that I liked. So I wanted to come back to graphic design department and they, they said I had to take an extra year. So I said, the hell with that. And I ended up in painting where they didn't really care what you did. And in painting, uh, they sort of ignored you and gave you a studio, which is fine with me. But I started doing a lot of paintings that had letter forms in them. So in a way, that's what I'm still doing. I do illustration, I do graphic design, and I do painting, and I do writing. And it's always been that way for me. I've never had, um, you know, a, a conviction or a focus for one thing. It's always like doing all those things. And, you know, I think that I en ended up getting the education that I needed, which was all of it. So, um, you know, there's some people that know they want to be a photographer or an architect or whatever, um, and that's great. But I never was like that. I always did all of these four or five things. So I don't know if that answers your question at all, but um, it, I, I made a stab at it, okay? No, it's it's totally makes sense, and it's um, it was a good answer evolved, but also how it was back what you mentioned the 60s and 70s and 80s, you know, um, and I've met designers um, who were from that generation, you know, right. I, I, um, I studied with Tony Palladino and he had kind of a similar approach to, to yours because um, obviously he was from the generation that who, who did not use computers. Everything was made by hand and um, the whole idea of how to approach art was differently and design. And that said, I mean, you mentioned, um, you know, a New Yorker and then you, then you end up um, doing all this design work for an illustration for New York Times, The New Yorker, The Wall Street Journal, The Atlantic, New York Magazine, Vanity Fair. Like how, how did you end up doing all this work for this well-known publications? Well, it was really easy. I mean, you'd go around with your portfolio. It wasn't like social media. You, it was very straightforward. You'd go around to all these magazines or sometimes they'd have a day where you dropped off your portfolio, but it was more fun to meet all these uh, personalities, these art directors, at that time they were almost always men uh, behind some desk and you'd show them your drawings and, you know, they'd flirt with you and you'd flirt with them and that would be fun. And, and, and you know, I just feel so sorry for everyone who's come up in the age of never meeting anybody because for me it was nothing but fun and all about personality. And, you know, I think if they liked you uh, and maybe if they like your drawings, they they might give you a job. But um, I once said on a different podcast, I got in big trouble because I was saying how much I enjoyed flirting with these old guys, you know, because I was like 22, right? And I'd go and, and it would always be a man behind the desk, you know, an art director or whatever, some magazine or something. And, uh, you know, they always or often wanted to just get into your pants, you know, and I knew that. Um, I mean, that's not why I was there, but it was fun to chat with them and flirt with them. And sometimes you'd get work, you know. Um, I used to have, you know, three and four appointments a day. And there was at that time, um, uh, the Rizzoli bookstore on Madison Avenue. Uh, it's about 55th Street. And um, they had a really great, uh, paid telephone in the back with a desk built in 
and that was my office. Or sometimes I used the pay telephones at the Russian Tea Room, um, oh which also had little desks built in. And I would bring a whole bunch of quarters and call everybody. I mean, this is around 1970, like when I got out of RISD, 77, 78. And I'd have tons of appointments. And, you know, sometimes I'd get jobs. And eventually I went to the New York Times Magazine, you know, the Sunday Magazine at the New York Times. And um, uh, Charlie Churchward, who ended up as an art director at Vogue, was then working with Ruth Ansel and and they said, we need somebody to do mechanicals. And I said, oh, I can do that. And not only did I, did I not know how to do mechanicals, I didn't know what the word meant, which probably most people now don't know what it means. But at that time, it meant um, you know, preparing the page to be printed. So you use a blue pencil and uh, to, to you know, mark out the space of you know, the, the, like a double page spread. And you wax you know, photostats, like copies of photos in different sizes and play with them and put them in the page and you know it was just a whole different world of but it was essentially production and um I didn't know what was going on but I showed up at the New York Times and uh, there was a proportion wheel on my desk which is more or less like a slide rule to figure out percentages and I had no idea what it was and I said to the guy it was a very tall handsome guy standing next to me Rich Samperi and I said to Rich uh what's this? What is this? You know? And he laughed because that was the main tool that was to be used for everybody. And so he knew immediately that I didn't know what the hell I was doing. So they taught me because I was young and they liked me and it was fun. And in fact, I ended up working for two of the most powerful women art directors ever. One was Bea Feitler. The other was Ruth Ansel. Bea Feitler and Ruth worked together at Bazaar Magazine in the 60s and discovered all of the famous, you know, photographers from that time and worked with Hero and Avedon. You know, um, I, I I think a lot about these times and I mentioned um, to a lot of my friends that I am kind of like, in a way, an old soul. Um, obviously, I didn't, you know, I didn't experience what you experienced in the 60s and 70s and, you know, well, but 60s. I am, I'm not, not that like, old. No, oh, sorry, 60s, 70s, I'm sorry, yeah. <laughs> no, no, that's I, not true. I, 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 feel, I feel you've been around for so long because you've done such an amazing amount of work, you know, from everything from product design to like branding to illustration to books, yeah, to well, shops, you know. It's and, all over now. It's no, it's not. I, I, I really believe that there's, you know, it, it's, it's like with the, um, you know, how everything now, everything is like from 80s and 90s is now popular again. Well, and that's what the they tell me. That... So on purpose, on my website, on Rosenworld, I put more things that I'd done, you know, for like Fiorucci in the uh, early 80s, uh, actually even late 70s, uh, I put work on my site because uh, apparently people that are 30 year for, for people that are 30 years old now, uh, the, the 70s and the 80s are very trending or something. So, uh, but you know, uh, for me, um, I guess it's good to have both uh, on your site, the things that you did last week and things that you did 30 years ago. But, um, you know, I, I, I don't really think that I know it sounds weird, but I don't really think that my work has changed very much. I feel like I've always done what I do um, and that fashion has changed around me, but um, 
you know, I've always done collage and did, and when computers started, you know, in the, in the late eighties, I incorporated digital and combined it with things done by hand and almost everything I've ever done since then has been a combination of the two, because I think it gives your work more personality and more soul to have something done by hand in combination of something graphic and digital. I like that sort of contrast between something out of control and human and gooky with something um, very strict and perfect. So to me, that, that, that sort of fight between those two things is where things get interesting. You know, if things are all abstract expression is bleh, it's not interesting <laughs> to me. And if things are totally perfect and clean, it's also boring to me. I like both. I, to tell you the truth, it's not really mistakes on purpose. It's more about the random. What, mm -hmm. what I wanted to do with the workshop was that I started to work in a certain way, but I was kind of in the closet about it. I never told anybody, never told my clients. But for me, I was so insecure, even though I've been drawing all my life, um, that every time I would get an assignment, I would be in a very negative attitude. I would think that because... Um, uh, I am the way I am. I'm a, I'm a terrible snob. And I would always think that I was smarter than the art director that was giving me the assignment. I would always think the assignment was stupid and that I was sort of above it all. And at the same time, I would feel very insecure and feel like I didn't know what to do with this assignment. And I didn't know how to draw, even though I'd been drawing. So I felt uh, alone with a blank piece of paper and I didn't want that. So I always needed somewhere to start. It was a very practical thing. The reason I started the Mistakes on Purpose workshops, it was that I started doing it myself for every assignment. I had to have like a starting point, like a scribble or a blob or a, you know, a corner, something on the white screen or on the white paper or both um, so that I wasn't alone with nothing. You know what I mean? So mm -hmm. what the, the, that workshop really should be called bringing in the random. In other words, if you have an assignment and your brain and an empty piece of paper, for me, that's a very frightening, lonely situation. But if you have a piece of paper with a blob on it, that blob could become somebody's hair or some background or the corner of a room. Do you know what I mean? It could be anything. Yeah. So what I did was I started making these ingredients, um, like you could call it a, a pantry or an arsenal, a, a collection of marks and pieces of collage paper and scribbles and, you know, also just drawings. I would cannibalize drawings I'd done before. Like if I had, you know, a face or an eyeball or a foot or, you know, a house or things that everybody has to draw all the time or a plant or an apple or, do you know what I mean? Like yeah. for almost every illustration, there might be an element that I already had in my arsenal, you know? It's funny because I just went to this really great show that is at the, Metro, the Metropolitan right now, which is, is it's a sort of strange idea, but I like it a lot. It's about cubism. Um, you know, there's tons of Picasso and Brock and Juan Gris, et cetera. Um, cubism and trompe l'oeil, you know, the, the idea of fooling the eye. Um, mm -hmm. And it's a great show you should, everybody should see because um, for one, for one thing, there's a there's a particular Picasso that had uh, a collage thing, an element with with a with an apple in it, piece of fruit, 
And it said, in fact, I can even send you, I took a picture of the, the description on the wall that Picasso made just like we're doing in these workshops, but I never knew this before, but it makes sense. When he was making all his collages, of course he would have surrounding him a whole bunch of different wallpapers and you know, he would clip out things from magazines that he liked and just have them around. It wasn't like he was sitting with an empty canvas and he would say, oh, now I need a picture of a pear or now I need a newspaper. No, he would have it, it would be there. Mm -hmm. So he would play around with elements that were already existing rather than start from zero every moment. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So all we're doing in the workshops really is giving people uh, access to all of these interesting starting points and you know ingredients like if you're cooking if you can imagine let's say uh you know you you go and you're, you're a chef and you or or any kind of ordinary cook you have to cook dinner for your family and you go into this uh beautiful kitchen with every possible fresh ingredient you know mm -hmm. you don't have to shop you don't have to think about you have everything you have pasta and cheese and milk products and the best butter and most beautiful fruits and vegetables and everything you could possibly imagine and herbs and spices galore um it's like that that's what you want you want that feeling of having an abundance of ingredients so that you can make things without the stress of starting from zero so that's really the practical way the workshop started. And I called it mistakes on purpose because I like the way it sounds, mm -hmm. you know, but I don't really consider them mistakes. I consider them, you know, ingredients, but that doesn't sound as fun. No. So, so do you think that nowadays designers don't have that, um, how to say, we have so many now, obviously, graphic programs, you know, computer programs to do design. So a lot of designers don't, don't go to the actual physical mediums to use to create art, right? So everything is done on the computer. So do you think the, the, because I, you know I'm a designer too so do you think we're kind of lacking that you know that world of physical objects where we can create something physically and take from there create something on the computer because I haven't seen anyone in the last five six years um, who would like even when I work in the at the company you know and sit next to the other designers um, sometimes I sketch, like if I, if I need to do a storyboard and I'm using, I don't know, sketch to make it, um, you know, the wireframes or whatever, I kind of still have, maybe it's because I am maybe older than those designers <laughs> in their twenties, but I feel like I need to draw something and I need to draw it first so I can, like I said, point of reference where I can take it further and design on the computer. But I've never, never seen in the last like five, six years, only once I worked with someone who was a UX UI designer and he was probably in his like 40s and he would send me sketches 
like not compute not done the computer by hand like he'll send me sketch um like he'll take a picture of the sketch that he did because he was based in in seattle and he will send it to me like this is the wireframe i'm thinking about and i was okay, like whoa but, but what what are you asking me are people well, missing I'm out for having you, not well, having well i'm asking knowledge. you because because i like the way I think, um, um, that's why I also took this workshop. I like the way uh, the designers from, you know, from 70s, 80s and everything approached artwork because you use like pen, you use means, you, you use to draw no, no, before. Uh, here, and, here, let, let, let me just say, I mean? to me, it's, re it's blindingly obvious. In fact, just yesterday I had a conversation with a friend about um, uh, AI, like figures, I was going by a billboard and I said, when I look at, you know, computer animation, which is mm -hmm. most animation now, mm -hmm. it seems to be there's three styles. There's like the more uh, Japanese style with uh, heavy outlines uh, that looks, that is pretty much looks hand drawn with flat colors. There is a sort of 3D thing that makes everything look like they're made out of airbrushed balloons. That's mm -hmm. the second choice, which is the billboard we saw. Yeah. And all the humans look the same to me. Yeah. Um, and then there's a style that is very, very uh, shadowed and based on photography and extremely complicated. And every, you know, everything looks like it's made out of frosted metal, you know, um, mm -hmm. uh, and, and very highly detailed and three-dimensional. And that's it. To me, um, uh, all computer programs are somewhat limiting because uh, everyone is using them. If you have, you know, say a million people on, of course, it's many more than that, using, you know, a certain program for animation or illustration or design, um, there are certain buttons and shortcuts and things that everyone is using. And as a result, of course, a lot of things look samey. Um, mm -hmm. And if you have a hundred people or a million people and each one is just holding a pencil, you're going to get a million different things, you know, not three different things. Mm -hmm. It's just different. It's a different, I think you have more, you know, humanity and personality automatically when you have a simple tool and somebody's brain, eye, and hand, when you have a sophisticated um, program that can do quote unquote, ev supposedly everything. It's just a question of choices, you know? And so you have 20 or 50 or 100 choices with every button. And it's, it's, it's much more limiting because, um, you know, if that weren't true, why does everything look so samey? It, it just, it, I, I can't understand, you know, why, uh, people don't, it doesn't bother other people that things look samey, but it bothers me a lot. So yeah. I like the individuality that happens in the workshop and in drawing in general, when people are just using the skill that they have and they don't, you know what? One of the things that really I love about teaching the workshop and makes me so happy is that, especially when I teach it for, you know, I taught it for Johnson and Johnson for, um, a lot of places that have nothing to do with art and design and the people at are at Johnson and Johnson that did it. And in fact, I did that one on zoom and I thought it would be boring, but it wasn't, it was fun. 
but anyway, the 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 Johnson and Johnson people were in sales and marketing and uh, product development. They weren't artists. They weren't arty in their jobs. And the people that you know are in like finance, you know, that never draw. All of a sudden, they're in a room with a paintbrush and black paint in their hand, and they think, "Oh no!" But in about two seconds, they realize that nobody's looking at what they're doing. And I'm playing loud disco music and everybody's giggling because they're all in the same boat and none of them draw and they're having fun. And then what is the big surprise is that, you know, I say, draw a fish, draw a flower, draw this, draw a car, draw a bike, draw this, draw that. And they do the most beautiful work because they're not worried. They're just having fun. And they know that nobody's going to put it up on the wall. There's no critique. There's never in my workshops, I've never said, oh, that's really working. Congratulations. And I've never said that's not really communicating or, you know, none of that. They just make a lot of stuff like they're in a factory. They might as well be flipping burgers. That's the feeling is -hmm. that they're in a big hurry because I always say quantity, not quality. So you're not focused on doing one good thing. You're focused only on doing a hundred things in a hurry. So you basically were saying that the way around because everybody's saying now, oh, it's not about quantity, it's about quality. And you were kind of pushing limits. (laughs) No, but but the thing is, uh, in your, it's like, it's really an emotional thing that, you know, when you're not, it it relieves stress when you're not focused on being good, that's when you're good. Because they're in a hurry to make, you know, 10 drawings, not make one good drawing. the 10 drawings have a feeling of lightness and, you know, freshness that, you know, it, it doesn't happen when people are trying so hard. So sometimes in, I always say in the book and in the workshop that not trying sometimes works, works better than trying, you know, it's not a question of laziness. It's a question of attitude. Of course, there's nothing wrong with working on a drawing for 10 hours. I'm not saying you can't do that. But for one day, right, for just one day, you're working in a different way. And you're seeing that, you know, when you're a child, when you're, I know with your children, I bet you can tell me this is true. I hope so. That at a certain, like when you're three, you're just, you get crayon and you're just scribbling and nobody's, you're not trying to get anywhere. You're not trying anything. It's just fun to do, right? Yep. I mean, you're not goal oriented or focused on anything but then when you're maybe eight or something somebody will say or seven or even six somebody will say hey that doesn't look like a dinosaur and then you're screwed because drawing becomes something that you can fail at Mm -hmm. and I want to bring back people to um, we're including all the drawings there's no editing you can't you're not allowed to throw anything out then everything goes into one big pot, like a file, right? And then later people see, oh, I did that and that and that and that. But while you're drawing, it's like a factory and there's no judgments and there's no competition and there's no failing and no success either. It's just get it out there, you know? And so I think, uh, especially in our world with, with digital technology, where it's so achievable to be perfect. Um, 
and so easy to be perfect. You know, people forget you have a machine that can draw a perfect circle and it does it for you. Well, how much fun is that? You know, it's like, okay, next, mm -hmm. you know, that's boring to me. Yeah. Um, so if you are in a room with a hundred people and there's music and people are sort of dancing around and drawing at the same time and paper is flying around, it's just a fun atmosphere. And you start, a, you, you immediately forget that, you know, you're trying to get anywhere you know? Mm -hmm. And I, I love that. And, and the result, sometimes people that never draw do the most beautiful drawings. And they're all, by the way, I'm going to give you a link to a lot of different things, including um, there's a Flickr site with a zillion, actually not a zillion. I think last time I counted, there were about 124,000 pages. And on each page is like 10 drawings. So that's a lot of drawings that people have done in the workshops over the years. And they're all free to use. Nobody cares about uh, copyright. Um, you know, if you can take a picture that somebody did of a flower in one of my workshops and make a million dollars with it, I say, go for it, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> but that's, I don't care. Definitely. Don't def think, yeah, it's definitely, yeah. definitely share this link. Definitely. Yes, I will. And, but it's much more fun to do the workshop yourself. And I'm hoping that, um, you know, some companies, I think it really have found it helpful. And I have a whole lot of testimonials from people that have said, not only that it's fun, but it's been very useful. And, you know, some schools have sort of incorporated into their program. Mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, that you, you, you very quickly see that, because of like scientific um, not invention, you know, like we all know about Fleming invented penicillin and it was essentially dirty dishes, you know, mm -hmm. he left some Petri dishes in the sink and went on, literally went on vacation and came back two weeks later and there was some mold that resisted some other mold and da-da, penicillin. But mm -hmm. he didn't do that on purpose. And the same thing with Velcro and post-it notes. And there's a whole long list of things that everybody knows were invented, quote unquote, by accident. Mm -hmm. But I think that in our world of digital technology, it's harder to do that because you can't imagine that happening in some big pharma company now, can you? Somebody being that sloppy. No, people are working on refining things and they're very sophisticated technology being used. There ain't mm -hmm. no dirty dishes right now. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't work that way anymore. Yeah. So I need to bring back that chaos. Yeah. Like the subtitle of the book is bring chaos to your order, because in my view, uh, in certain respects, our digital world is just too perfect and it doesn't, there's no space. There's no room for the kind of discoveries that Fleming made, you know? Mm -hmm. So I want to bring that back to a certain extent not that I'm expecting everybody that does the workshop to do some invention that will save the world but you never know yeah yeah and I see that you um actually uh you did it with Google Starbucks Scholastic mm -hmm. BuzzFeed that's big companies and and Google I mean you know it's it's a just digital company you know so it's interesting that they yeah they wanted to do this workshop it's like yeah yeah and um i would actually like to do it for google again because that was quite some time ago so 
I think, you know, like the bigger and the more, well, people don't say the word high tech anymore, but the more sophisticated <laughs> a company is, the bigger a corporation is, the more they need uh, this kind of, you know, workshop, this kind of short education, because like I said, there's nothing wrong with problem solving. I'm not expecting some big pharmaceutical company to say, oh, now we're going to base everything on mistakes like Fleming did. No, of course not. You need to, you need problem solving. You need the refined technology. We're not getting rid of that. Nobody's telling anyone to throw away the computer and to, you know, stop problem solving. It's just another tool. It's another way of working that is different. And that you could experience just for one day for, you know, two or three hours. And I think that that people have found it really helpful to have this alternate way of uh, this different kind of attitude towards work that is more uh, spontaneous. And and I think people need that. Yeah, yeah. I think so. I think so. I mean, I just... Uh... Just based on my work experience, I feel uh, like computers replaced and, you know, graphic programs replaced everything. And there is no, you know, there is no kind of fun by, you know, with creating something by hand anymore, you know, with like, whether it's drawing or painting or, you know, uh, choosing colors, the different way rather than selecting from a drop down exactly you know exactly so there's a lot of freedom also in limitation like i said if you have a pencil in your hand you have only three color you know it, it, it's a very different we always work in black and white because i'm expecting people to bring these hand-drawn things you know we do the, every possible element you could think of we do alphabets we do lines we do circles we do frames we do uh, every possible kind of font and alphabet and punctuation and numbers that are in this Flickr file and, and uh, uh, website. And also, um, you know, when, when you collect, when you have all these things at your disposal that are done by hand, they're a perfect foil uh, mm -hmm. to the things that you do digitally. And like I said, I am not ever saying, oh, throw away the digital. I am saying that interesting things happen when you bring in some of these human and uh, uh, chaotic elements, um, they're helpful to combine with the perfection of the, our digital world. That's all, and problem solving. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I don't think it's an easy sell. I think that a lot of people don't understand that this is necessary but I get, you know, such a great reaction from people, um, you know, in very corporate settings um, because it's, it's a, and also, you know, some people think of it as a team building thing, but it is social. It's fun. People have a good time when they're doing it. And, um, you know, I'm just hoping that people will see the value of that, especially now when COVID is, COVID is lightening up a bit and, um people really value getting together again. Yeah. Yeah. I think that also people um, don't realize that if they are in, exposed to this kind of atmosphere, 
they forget that there is like a structure in their life, you know, because everything is structured, you know, uh, your work is structured, your family is kind of, you know, I mean, maybe there's chaos and everything, but there's, you know, we always trying to structure our life. And I think mm -hmm. this, this, this workshop, because I, I mean, I took it too, it kind of allows you to get loose and, and, and taper into the corner of your brain that was inactive for mm -hmm. a while. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's using a different like muscle of your brain or whatever. By yeah. the way, um, I can't remember which, where did you take the workshop? Do you remember where it was or with who? Uh, with who? It was with you. No, um, I know, but <laughs> but with with what was it? A, a school company? What was it? Uh, no, it was. I think it was part of the um, typography or uh, uh, directors club. Oh, the art directors club. Yeah, yeah the art directors club. Fun. Yeah, it's it was a big room, right? That was yeah, a it was a big, big room. room. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I have actually another thing that I'll give you. I'll send you some links that anyone can see where you can see, in fact, I have a film of that day. You might even be in it. Um, uh, I, I always film the people taking the workshops in action. So I have film, from, you know, in Milan and from London and from New York and from San Francisco and all of these different groups that have taken the workshop. And it's always a little bit different. Um, last time I did it was in Bend, Oregon, and they, they had me in a church and I was standing at the pulpit. It was really fun funny um oh. but you know so sometimes it's a group of three people but more often it's it's 50 people but sometimes it's been 200 people yeah so i sort of vary it depending on you know who is participating and i also tailor it depending on you know are they designers are they non-designers is it a mix um so yeah i always make sure that that it accommodates people of all kinds of backgrounds, you know, I like that when mm -hmm. there's a real mix. That's my favorite. Yeah, when I remember just designers. I don't really want a whole room of graphic designers necessarily. Yeah. Oh, so, yeah. <laughs> oh, I totally get it. Um, so my question then is, what do you think about the 3D printing? Because like I, I have mixed feelings. I understand that it's a very convenient thing, and for certain industries maybe it's a good thing you know um rather than creating something from you know um zero to to just uh you know have the 3d machine to print it out um but on the other hand i'm thinking so there's an artist who has been working for like on a sculpture you know on let's say in a small sculpture you know for a while and then 3d machine can just like replicate it in like an hour um and I feel like it's kind of like in a way cheating and also um, I mean, I, hopefully they give credit to this original, you know. Oh, wait, when you think but, of it that way, you know, don't you think that it's just another um, step in, you know, like you can have a, a beautiful handmade ceramic bowl or you could have a plastic bowl that costs $2 from Ikea. They both do the same job. They hold, you know, a bowl of fruit or whatever, or soup or whatever it is. Um, but there's a huge world of difference. And you can appreciate that difference or decide not to appreciate the difference. But, um, you know, it's the same as, you know, when computers came along uh, with typography, with, with, with the, the, the way that 
um, everything is made now digitally. It's just, it's just another dimension literally of that. And you can't stop that progress. And I think just like anything else, 3D printing uh, uh, is making good things and bad things. You know, there's yeah. 3D printing and there's 3D printing. I would love to try something um, because I think it's a fascinating technology. There's somebody in my new studio building that has a 3D printer. And I'm trying to think of what I might want to print. Um, I've been doing shoes, you know, I've been doing these kind of limited edition vans, you know, that I do, um, that I actually am going to put a shopping thing on the website for, but, um, I would love to do like platform, like shoe bases or what, what would you call that? So shoe soles, mm -hmm. uh, that are really fun in the 3d printer. I was thinking of trying to do that. So I think it's great, you know, I like all of it. Mm -hmm. So Lori, um, you also did a lot of product design and brand design and for online and print media companies. Um, you did, you work for, um, did some work for Bloomingdale's, Coca-Cola, for Neiman Marcus, Nickelodeon, you know, um, just to name a few. Um, how did that go? I mean, how did it come around? Why you? were you approached through your illustration work or how did you get to do the uh, branding and product design? Well, I have to be really honest with you. Uh, a lot of those things um, are not recent and I don't really remember exactly how I, they came about. I know that because I did so much work for the New Yorker um, over a period of you know, 25, 30 years, um, that that was a good, uh, they would call it then a shop window. That was a good way to get people to see my work. And through the New Yorker uh, illustrations, um, a lot of people, you know, got in touch with me initially, whether it was to do the children's book or something else, uh, you know, depending on what it was. Uh, the New Yorker was a good way of uh, showcasing my work. But it's really hard for me to remember a lot of those things because they were so long ago um, that you mentioned, you know, like the Nickelodeon, I did a whole lot of stuff for them in the nineties, you know, it was uh, mm -hmm. on air interstitial programming. It was a lot of animation I was doing for a while. I did some animation for David Sedaris uh, because of that came about because of the New, New Yorker because I illustrated a whole bunch of his uh, humor pieces and I was such a big fan. I wrote him a fan letter and said, you know, I'm so honored to draw to your stories because I'm just a big reader and I, I love his writing. Mm -hmm. So um, then he wrote me back and I met him in Paris and we've been friends and he blurbed my book, the, the Mistakes on Purpose book, which is really great. Um, so uh at one point um he said he was he had all of these diary entries um that were too short for a, even for a short story but i said you know maybe i can make some animations out of them so i did that and they made an animated app for hachette called david's diary and there's been a few different other iterations of that now but um yeah, uh, it, it's all over the place, you know, and sometimes, you know, people would think of me as a graphic designer. I did logos for Nickelodeon and, and, and Nick at Night. I did animation. So some of those bigger companies, I did a lot of different types of things for. 
And mm -hmm. that's fun because, you know, uh, when you do, like I've been doing most of my career work for hire, as it's called, um, especially when your work is, well, arty, like mine is, uh, you end up working for a lot of different people. If your work is kind of neutral and just, you know, tasteful, uh, and you can do anything for anybody, uh, how can I put this? Um, the more personality your work has, the more different clients you have. Because for instance, if I do a Bloomingdale shopping bag, uh, they don't want me to do the Bloomingdale shopping bag next week or next year, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, you have a certain look that is very distinctive. So I did like billboards for Target stores that were in Times Square, and that was really fun. But then they don't want you to do the same thing next year. They want somebody else, which is quite natural, you know? So if you have a very distinctive look to your work and a really strong personality, um, it means that you have to continually get different projects from different places uh, and not count on having the same clients over and over and over again, because, you know, uh, the people that, you know, do hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of like say book jackets, like they specialize in book jackets. Um, those book jackets, uh, they have a certain, how, they, they could be for anything, right? Mm -hmm. But my, my book jackets, I've only done, you know, 20 or 30. I haven't done 300. And the same thing is true of film titles or the same thing is true of products. Um, I have a limited amount of those things because of each kind of thing, because I never specialized. And it's a good thing too, because it's more variety for me. And it's also more variety for the client because I do a book jacket for them. Uh, and then they'll have somebody else do the next one, you know, not mm -hmm. me again. And mm -hmm. I like that. I like that, you know, uh, you do a strong statement and then you move on to a different client, a different project. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of been my MO. Did you ever feel that the big companies have certain restrictions uh, for an artist in terms of how much can you push the envelope, how much you can be artistic? Um, because I know from just the, you know working with big companies, they have certain strict guidelines and branding yeah. no, guidelines. I, 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 of course they do. I mean, uh, that's why a lot of the things that I've done, they've been for, it could be a music company or a fashion company. Um, you know, I don't do like serious financial or pharmaceutical. I don't know, uh, the, 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 the really boring corporate stuff I've never really done. <laughs> My work, like I said, has too much, it's too arty. It has too much personality. So the answer is, of course, uh, there are millions of restrictions. And even when you're working for the New Yorker, I remember doing one illustration. I did something about Ikea a few years ago. Uh, it was a photo collage thing, which was sort of unusual for me. Uh, it was a full page. And I did it literally 100 times because um, it's not just the big corporation. Well, they are a big corporation. They're part of Condé Nast. And so is everything now a big corporation. Uh -huh. But um, uh, everywhere has their rules. And unfortunately, um, you know, 
it's very rare. I can count on one or two hands, maybe the times that a creative director or an art director says, here, here's a project and I do the project and they say, fine, we'll print it. That almost mm -hmm. never happens. Yeah. It's, uh, never. it's the norm <laughs> is to change things uh, a zillion times. And part of that, unfortunately, is that there are very few, I think that there are very few creative directors that, you know, don't feel that they have to say no because they have the confidence to get the right person to do the right job at the right moment and just, you know, let them do their thing and excel at what they do. Um, but that's very rare. There are, there are certain art directors that can do that and they're the really confident ones. Um, and, you know, I feel very lucky to have worked with some really great art directors, but I think the norm is to have to change things a zillion times is, is it goes with the territory. So let's say I open if, for example, a big company approaches you and says, well, you know, we need, um, you know, we need something from you, you know, a certain um, a project, certain art or something, but here are very strict guidelines. This is, this is this, like, are you open to. Well, it depends. Work? No, wait, it depends because there are guidelines and there are guidelines. I mean, guidelines uh that make sense you know include obviously you know it's a certain format or you have to use their font or their colors you know there, there are certain things that you have to do uh but the, you can't generalize because for instance i did a whole bunch of stuff where i was going to be on the uh it was a it was a um uh licensing project for a Japanese company where uh, it was my own products and they changed them a lot in the samples. Like I would make something bright orange and they would turn it to, you know, maroon and we get in a big fight. That's very different because my name was on it and I wanted it to reflect my design sensibility. And that was more important to me than having it be a big commercial success. Like they would say, oh, well, Maroon will sell better in Japan. And I said, well, I don't care. It won't be mine anymore. You know, it won't be my design anymore. That's what I care about. Mm -hmm. So, but when you're working for, um, let's say Viacom Nickelodeon and you have to do a logo for uh, Nick at Night or, or something like that, you have to use their logo. You have to use their you know, you, you have to use their, they have lots of parameters that you have to work within, but you know that from the get-go and you follow them. I mean, I just did a book, it's called Spiritual AF, which you can understand what that means. And um, I really didn't like the book, but it was fun to work on the project, but um, every other word was uh, profanity, which I thought was a really cheap, there's so many books with the F word in the title now that I made a point of not using it in any of my books because it just, to me, if everybody's zigging, I want to zag. If everybody's using the F word, I'm going to avoid it. If everybody says amazing, I never say that, you know, um, it's all part and parcel. You know, I've never used, I'm the only person, maybe, you know, that's never used an emoji, not once because I can't make my own. I mean, you can make them, but to make them actually working, 
uh, I have a, a Swedish friend that did uh, beautiful emojis, Andrea Samuelson, but it really is hard to make them um, uh, work for technical reasons. You know what I mean? So a real emoji that anyone on the planet can use, that is a really hard thing to get going. So I don't use them because I'm an artist. I don't want to put, a, put somebody else's work in my you know, email or my text. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, that might be going to extremes, but originality is, is very important to me. Mm -hmm. it's, it's who I am. So, um, well, I can certainly work within parameters <laughs> and I expect to for almost any company, but you no, know. I'll be, I'll be honest. You're the most original person I've ever met. That's why I'm, I'm so fascinated with your work and have been for quite a while. Um, because I haven't met anyone like you. You know why? The way you speak. You know why, though? <laughs> you know why, Elisa? I don't have children. I don't have, no, really. If I had a big family to support, I wouldn't have been able to do any of the things that I've done the way that I've done it. I mean, people said you mean, you mean I went travel to Italy when I was so young and I didn't know what was going to happen. I worked for Fiorucci and all these interesting people. And it was, I, I've had a really good fun time and worked in Japan and all over Europe and, you know, taught all over the world. And it's a trade-off, you know, either yeah. you have stability, which is mm -hmm. a good thing, or mm -hmm. you have adventure, which is a good thing, but you can't really have both. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, you, you're not the first person who I've met. And um, in my previous episode, I spoke with, um, you know, with a dancer and choreographer and yoga instructor who also chose this path because um, the life of an artist um, and she's a performer is um, when you don't know what's going to be tomorrow and you need right. to be flexible enough tomorrow to fly, you know, I don't know, across the country or and not necessarily you have you have that flexibility. Obviously, yeah, you, you're right with the, with kids. It's um, everything changes, you know, so yeah, you and also you, I would have to take jobs that were just for money that I didn't want to do. And I really haven't had to do that. So I'm very, very lucky. Most people can't say that. And part <laughs> of it was that I had some money in my family. It wasn't enough to support me without working, but it was enough so that when I was very young, I was able to buy a, an apartment. Mm -hmm. And that changed everything because at least I knew I had a place to live. Mm -hmm. And so uh the things like that are very important you know and mm -hmm. if i had to do some you know corporate job that i didn't like you know like most people do uh things would have been very different but because i had a place to live that i could count on from a from a young age um i know that i'm very very fortunate i'm i'm really a very privileged person Mm -hmm. So you say for um, you did have um, certain situation when a company or, you know, an organization would approach you and you said no. Well, yeah, specifically the, 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 the licensing deal with the Japanese people mm -hmm. um, that I was so excited about. And in fact, I would still love to do, you know, there's a whole range of products like shirts, bags lots and lots of bags, shoes, t-shirts, every, you know, every dresses, tights, um, all kinds of products that I'm very, very proud of. 
The problem is, is that a lot of big companies, say Uniqlo, uh, it seems to me that they uh, would rather have a celebrity, which I'm definitely not, um, that they don't, they don't care nearly as much about the steak as the sizzle, which is what they used to call it, meaning that they care about how many followers and how famous the t-shirt designer is. It's not even, it has to be a designer. You know, it can be, you know, obviously Lady Gaga t-shirt is going to sell more than Lori Rosenwald yeah. t-shirt, right? Yeah. So that's at the core of, if I have a problem, that's my problem because I have a lot of uh, great content, but um, I'm still alive. You know, I knew Keith Haring and Basquiat they are legends now. Yeah. I'm still alive. <laughs> I'm still designing things. Yeah. And um, my name doesn't writing have books. any yeah. uh, mm -hmm. uh, meaning to most people. Mm -hmm. And that's a shame because... Uh, it is a shame. I don't care that I'm... I don't want to be famous, but that's what makes it possible to put your designs out in the world. And unfortunately, if it's only the name that matters, uh, it, it puts me in a difficult spot because for me, it's only the design, the thing itself. Is it a beautiful shirt? Is it a beautiful shoe? Is it a beautiful belt or bag or whatever? I think I have a lot of those things to offer, but um, you know, maybe I have to, uh, I need like a alias or something. I don't know. Yeah. No, I totally and and we discussed that before actually uh, this chat um that nowadays and that's a shame because I feel um uh, like this is a big oversight uh by big companies. Obviously the big companies are looking for profit. So there are a lot you of can't blame where, them. Yeah. you know they, they they hire someone um who is I'm not saying not uh talented, talented obviously designers but who have a lot of followers on social media because right. this way they have another channel to advertise their product. So, um, and, and, that, and that, that's why um, even like the skincare that comes from celebrities, they, course, you know, course. it instantly becomes a hit because of that celebrity name attached to this product. Not necessarily the product is better than Maybelline or something. Yeah, but... like Rihanna is not a makeup artist and Lady Gaga is not a clothing designer or, or skincare specialist, but their products, their cosmetics sell in the zillions mm -hmm. because they have the name and that's fine. It's just that, you know, it, our priorities have definitely shifted where it used to be back in the day that, you know, Elizabeth Arden or somebody became famous because she developed a, a skin cream, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, it's, it's or, or Estee Lauder rather. But, um, you know, uh, you have to accept that this is how things are and you have to find maybe sneaky ways around it. And I'm hoping that because my books are good and funny and because my workshop is, you know, when I do it, people just flip out. They have so much fun. Um, so I'm going to keep making things and I'm going to keep writing things and drawing things and painting things. And then, you know, if people find out about it, like through this podcast, that's great. And if they don't, they don't. That's the point. I, I, I feel like, you know, um, that I'd rather spend, if I'm lucky, I have another 20 years or something 
right? I'm 67. If I'm very lucky, I have another 10 or 20 years or whatever. And I want to spend my time making stuff and I'm not going to spend my time promoting stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, it's yeah. it's because uh, it makes me happy to draw and paint and design things. So I'm going to keep doing it no matter what. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to mention that I have three of your books. Um, so and um, as I mentioned to you before, you know, the book that is and to name, but just if you read yellow, green and blue is very popular with my kids. That's so good. I love they to just, hear that. They just yeah. love it. Just love oh, it. I'm so happy. It's I think it just speaks to them. And I, I, I totally will recommend to everyone even if you don't have kids, but for everyone who <laughs> loves color and who have kids to get this book, and I'm going to provide links for all these books. Thank and uh, one of my favorite ones, I mean, I, I love the um, uh, the New York notebook because, you know, living in New York, you totally get it, you know, because I read every single page and I understand what you mean because I am here, I experienced that and it really speaks. And I think I would love to I would love to um, update that book, by the way, with an online version as well, because um, since I'm a native New Yorker and I'm very proud of that, I have like special, uh, very select, you know, it's like five restaurants, not 500, that mm-hmm. have something special about them and might be a little bit secret uh, that I do want to share with people, but not too many people. And it's like that, you know, I think it's fun to have a little out of the way, a little hidden information that only comes with really being here the whole time and, and noticing those special things. Like and places know- that are so unhip, they're hip. Yeah. That's the way I look at it. I remember, you know what, what stuck in my mind, and I know we're running out of time, but I just wanted to um, to mention that I remember watching one of your animation about um, Subway and like certain uh, New York things that all yeah. yes, like a New Yorker or somebody who lives in New York will understand. And I remember um, there was like a little clip of a woman sitting on Subway and like cutting her nails. And <laughs> yeah. I was like, I just had this experience the other day. You did? Like this is so awesome because it's like every single, you know, um thing that you have in this New York book and everything else is just like it it speaks to the audience and I Well I, the, what I, I have to tell them because you mentioned the animation and maybe you can share some of the links of those. I'll give them to you. But but the what that animation is like it, there's a like a punchline is like where uh, there should be a new etiquette book. And one of the rules is when you leave a public place, all of your DNA should leave with you. Yes, correct. Yes. The same as airplanes, you know what I mean? So yeah, <laughs> definitely, definitely, definitely. And I just wanted to mention one more book because that's one of my favorite ones. I'm just like, every time I read at least one page, I'm like laughing so hard is the one, um, the, all the wrong people have self-esteem. And there's this one thing that he says, because it's, it's like talking about me and about a lot of my friends who I know, um, you say that interesting people are full of doubt. People who are totally sure their way is the only way are always wrong. I think self-esteem is a myth perpetrated by psychologists, movie stars, magazines, and the pharmaceutical industry. They want you to think something is wrong with you because you don't have self-esteem like you should. Oh, please. Uh, George O'Keefe. George O'Keefe. Yeah, uh, which is like a great uh, photographer, right? Artist. Artist, yeah. yeah. No, but yeah, 
Beethoven and Mark Twain all had their doubts, but managed somehow to get a few things done, and so can you. It's amazing. I, I totally recommend all those books, and I will include the links. Okay, good. And, thank you. Thank, thank you, Lisa. I am so, like, I'm so honored, and I will, I, I will try not to use the word amazing, um, knowing that you hate this word. <laughs> No, I don't care I use it a lot. Use it, yeah, I, I use it. Yeah. I use it a lot, but I've heard from many, many actually New Yorkers who do not you know like. What you could say, you know yeah. what you could say. Um, I'm not a native speaker. I have to substitute certain words, but um, I'm so honored that you were on my podcast, and uh, I think you're incredible. And when I was working with you at your studio, um, I learned so much. Just not well, only. I hope we get to work together again sometime because yeah. you're a joy to work with and very smart cookie. So and, uh, I really appreciate that you called me to do this. I'm really happy about it. I'm, I'm truly honored that I got to meet you and I had the guts to write to you. And I think I emailed to you when you were looking for an intern. And I knew that my age was not an intern, an intern age, but I wanted to um, get to know you and, and, and see you work and just uh, be around you so much. But I think, I think you were pretty impressed with my, with my sincere I think, I, I think you're a very talented person. And, and I think the podcast is a great idea. And now I've got to go to my class. Yes. Good luck. And that's another thing you do. You teach me others. So, so yeah, it's, it's, it's perfect. So All thank right. you so much for being on my podcast. And thank I you whoever you are for listening. Thank you for listening to an America But Not Really podcast. If you want to know more about Lori Rosenwald, attend her How to Make Mistakes on Purpose workshop or work with her, you can find more information on her website, rosenwald.com, or reach out to her on Instagram at rosenwald. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast and follow me on Instagram at an American But Not Really. Now, if you'd like to ask me a question or suggest a guest or a topic, I'd love to hear from you. There are many ways to do so. You can contact me on any of the podcast platforms you're using to listen to your podcast, or you can DM me on my Instagram, or you can voice me on anchor.fm and American, but not really. Bye-bye for now. Until next Friday.